Casey. And I'm Emily. And you're listening to A Sprinkle of Sugar, A Dash of Murder, a true crime podcast with an element of baking. Um, and what did you bake this week? So, this week I made some really gourmet Ooh. chocolate chip, so I guess it would be like double chocolate mm. muffins. Delicious. And they are waiting for us right now. They just finished... They are cooling off, and we will eat them as soon as we're done. Yes. They are out of the box. <laughs> I have to be honest. But you know, I actually made something this week, so yeah. progress. Um, yeah, you know, it is hard as a newborn, especially, you know, I realized what it is. It's the going out and getting the, the supplies, all the fixings for it. Yeah. That would be, that's probably like the most difficult part of all of this. Um, just because, you know, I can't go to the store and get, get everything I, I need because I got a newborn with me. Yeah. So, oh well. So yeah, we're out of the box this week, but you know, it'll still be delicious and yeah, um, I will probably recommend it. Yeah. I mean, they turned out really good. They looked great. They looked and smelled really good when I walked in. (laughs) So... All right. No complaints. So, um, and that, yeah, once again, has nothing to do with this case that we're covering. Right. Um, but what was the documentary that you, this is based off of? So this is called uh, The Cheshire Murders, which is, I pulled all my information from this HBO documentary film about this case. So I have not seen this one this, this time around. Um, I don't have an excuse other than my, my primary excuse has been non-stop the baby yes so <laughs> understandable yes so but i actually i do want to watch it so i'm excited to hear about it and then i'll also watch it yeah because yeah there's more obviously i can't fit everything that's in a two-hour documentary in here so yeah you can watch it and still find some new things too so mm-hmm. yeah hbl but um like always when i'd watch these things i kind of put it in the format and follow it the structure of how they present the information in the documentary so it'll be a lot of back and forth of stuff so this crime happened on monday july 23rd 2007 and the initial 911 call happened at 9 21 a.m so the 911 call came from a banking manager who said that a woman named Jennifer Pettit had come into the bank and told her her husband and children were being held at their house. And she was told by a man whose name is Stephen Hayes to go into the bank and get $15,000. So it's kind of like a ransom hostage Mm -hmm. situation. Um, And that her captor was outside of the bank and she was supposed to get the money and get back in the car with him and go back to the house. And so the banking manager is on the phone with calling on behalf of Jennifer. Um, one hour later, 10.30 a.m., police arrive at the home and see it in flames. <gasps> yeah. And the two suspects who were trying to get away at this point. So apparently, and I say apparently, the police had just gotten there as the two guys were trying to leave and one of the suspects rammed the vehicle they were driving into a cop car as they were trying to drive off. But obviously they did not escape because he hit a cop car. Right. (laughs) Can't drive off from that too easily. (laughs) 
So the two men were 44-year-old Stephen Hayes and 26-year-old Joshua Komisarjevsky. Wow, nice pronunciation. Thank you. Except, okay, really quick. Yeah. So they pull up and the house is already on fire. They're not responding to the house being on fire, right? Nope. So they it's were the they were alerted and they all so the, but how long was the house burning? Like how how up in flames was the house? It was like pretty bad. So why wasn't burning. there also calls out? Is this in the middle of nowhere or is it in any No, it's a neighborhood. It's uh, a busy neighborhood. I guess houses kind of do go up quicker than you'd think. Yeah, I um it it definitely went up like super fast fast. yeah probably like gasoline or something okay all right continue so this is also in cheshire connecticut um and it was just known as like a typical you know pretty usual usual place no nothing like this really happened so jennifer pettit uh who's wife and mother of this family was found to have died of asphyxiation from strangulation and her two daughters, Haley and Michaela, died of smoke inhalation. Oh, and they oh, were the so ones in the sad. home. Yeah, Jennifer's husband, William, who they call Bill or Billy, was badly beaten, but he had managed to escape the house. I wouldn't even want want to at that point. I know it's yeah, horrible. I know, but at that point, I I don't think I'd want to be the only survivor out of that. That would be really. Yeah, that would be really hard to live with. Yeah, you'd get, you'd have like the survivor's guilt from it. And then also, I mean, like your wife and your children just died. Yeah. Okay, so at around 9 a.m. is when the two, or Stephen drove Jennifer to the bank. And when they returned, apparently they set the house on fire to try and cover their tracks, which Mm -hmm. is what they were trying to do. Cynthia Hawk Ryan, who is Jennifer's sister, and her parents went to go see Bill in the hospital. Um, he had been badly beaten in his head with a baseball bat. And so he had lost a lot of blood and had like gashes on his head. Oh my gosh. Beaten with a baseball bat. Yeah. A wooden one. Oh. Okay. So Cynthia, Jennifer's sister, and her parents went to see Bill in the hospital. And he tried to apologize to them for not protecting their daughter and grandchildren. And that doesn't really hurts me. Like, poor guy. Like, yeah. I, I feel so bad because he's just got to be beating himself up so bad. Yeah. For no reason. Mm-hmm. It's not his fault. No, it's not. And his uh, sister-in-law and mother and father-in-law, like, reassured him that they didn't blame him at all either. So, yeah. Good. Um, in the past, Jennifer was diagnosed with MS, multiple sclerosis, and her daughter Haley raised $50,000 for her, and Haley was in a lot of activities and sports and a straight-A student, and Michaela, uh, the younger daughter, she really loved helping people and was very sweet, um, and unfortunately, they were the three who passed away in this incident. Wow, she raised $50,000 for her mom. Yeah. How old was she again? Um, she was maybe like, I I don't think they ever said exactly, or I missed it, but like s- between 16 and 18. Okay. Yeah. 
something like that oh by the way uh, <laughs> if you hear little coos or like heavy breathing here and there jilly my daughter <laughs> in with us so you might hear a coo hopefully a happy coo or yeah. a little uh maybe a little poot <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll be blessed with that that'd be the best uh, continue okay the two men who did this crime um one of them had followed jennifer and her 11 year old daughter michaela to a grocery store um well not follow them to there sorry he followed he saw them there and followed them around the grocery store which is how he kind of picked them for the crime oh weird yeah Bill escaped with his legs tied. He managed to hop up the cellar stairs and got himself out. But like we said earlier, he had like gashes to his head and was bleeding badly. Um, And some officers said later that they had heard the girls screaming um, during the fire. And so Cynthia, this prompts Jennifer's sister to want to know why the officers did not bother to go inside the house and get the girls or even try and why Jennifer was not stopped at the bank because there was about an hour between the 911 call was made and the house started to be on fire. See, that's what I was questioning because it's like, how convenient that they show up right when the fire is started. Mm -hmm. Like the whole travel time and then everything behind that it just seemed bizarre that fire was already happening by the time they showed up yeah so thomas Ullman was stephen hayes defense attorney and the defense for him really followed that stephen was suicidal he was depressed he had a long list of previous burglaries um taking things from people's cars when they left it alone so because Although he has burglaries, the defense really pushed it like he was never going to become violent like this if it weren't for the other person involved in the crime. Because his thing was always to like rob cars and stuff after he saw people left. Mm, okay. So that's the angle his defense lawyer is going to try and pursue during this trial. Okay. Um, Joshua's arrest, Joshua uh, Komizarjewski, was the other person involved his family was also shocked to hear of his arrest his mother and father posted a note on their door about like their sympathy for the family but they never went out and publicly spoke they didn't go to the trial they basically like shut up their house so and media people were surrounding their house trying to talk to his family they got pretty much nothing out of them I mean, that's always a question. It's like, because you want to know why someone does this. Mm-hmm. And the first place you'd go is their family to know, like, how they they were brought up and know yeah. their whole history to kind of understand the person's psyche. Yep. So I can totally see why the family, who's probably embarrassed and shocked, you know, for themselves, would want to just shut everyone out because they don't want to be involved, whether they support him or not. Right. Yeah. Joshua wanted to become an architect, and he was actually very good at it. Um, He had been in counseling recently to try and make his life better, trying to stay clean, so he had been on drugs previously. And William Garris was Josh's defense attorney. And Josh also had tons of previous burglaries. But the thing is, 
he also was kind of a genius. He had a photographic memory, and his defense attorney said when he went over with Josh, all of his, he had 18 total previous robberies on his record, um, that Josh, because of his memory, was able to remember like every single detail of every robbery he ever did, like where a person's clothes were specifically in a room, like what exact times, like he could remember all of that. You know, I want to know about the statistics of murderers and their IQs. Yeah. It seems like a lot of murderers actually have higher IQs. It's weird. And that's actually frightening it's terrifying yeah like why would intelligent people kill people but then they always make a mistake and then you realize how stupid they are in the end right but still yeah it's it's very it's definitely weird yeah i want to know what like what the statistics are and what people's oh hello jilly Mm -hmm. what people's theories are Mm-hmm. In 2002, Josh had actually been sentenced to nine years in prison for his robberies, and he was paroled in April of 2007, so only a couple months before this crime happened. Whoa. And the parole board was questioned why he was paroled. Yeah. And they defended themselves saying while he was with them, he gave no inclination that uh, he would be become this violent he had passed all their tests and everything um i mean he didn't have a violent history either right no just the robberies you know yeah yeah at that point so it was very and Stephen was the same thing he had passed all his tests recently and he was also paroled and he gave no inclination that he would be violent either so people are kind of like baffled why it would escalate like this, like what went down. Right. Mm-hmm. So the public becomes very interested in wanting to know the details, like what happened between the 911 call and the fire starting. But uh, the police defend themselves and say, no, we're not going to give any information to the media or the public. We're not going to release any details of that. So that remains a mystery for quite some time, and people were really outraged about that especially the family they wanted to know because not even the family knew some details of how their family died at this point Ugh. i don't know i don't know if i'd want to know every detail yeah or if i would just i don't know i mean i guess i think personally i'm just very detail oriented i think i would want to know yeah i i would get sparing myself and others of the truth but also it would feel wrong not to know the truth to me. That's true. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, November 20... No. November 7th, 2007, the court imposes a gag order barring the police, lawyers, and witnesses from speaking to the media. So that kind of sparks even more controversy of like, what happened? Are the police covering something up? Because, I mean, those things happened, but people were very suspicious of why nobody could talk about this case. I always wonder that, too. Like, I mean, I get not wanting details of the case to be out to the public mm-hmm. um, for, like, during the during the um, trial and everything. I totally understand that. But it does make you question why, as like, are, is it because you're investigating and you're on to something and you don't want the media to know? Yeah. Like, how, how, but then again, I mean, the people are, the guys are caught. 
So mm-hmm. what's keeping it from the public going to really do besides cover something up? Exactly. And the family really starts to believe something is being covered up at this point. Mm-hmm. So Hayes's attorney, Stephen Hayes, says that pushing he was pushing to stop the death penalty. So and Josh's defense attorney does the same thing. They both agree to plead guilty to all charges in order to get the death penalty off the table. But the prosecution rejects this offer and they decide to push for the death sentence through a trial. Wow. Instead. Yep. Um, Matthew Hayes, who is Stephen Hayes' brother, found out about what Stephen had done by seeing a magazine at the grocery store and seeing the headline. And the headline said that his brother had raped Jennifer and killed her and her daughters. So that is a new detail that wasn't previously known either, that Jennifer had uh, been raped as well. Oh my gosh, it's horrible. Yeah. It's absolutely horrible. Yep. And Matthew and his oh. other brother, Brian, fully believe that Stephen should not have been released from prison. They say he was manipulative since he was a child. Brian even said he hoped someone would shoot him coming out of the courtroom, that the death penalty was, like, too good for him. So his brothers, like, do not like him at all. I mean, you know, blood runs thicker than water or whatever the phrase is. Mm-hmm. But when you kill innocent children like an innocent family yeah it's just that's just messed up like i would write off anybody for that yeah totally and the brothers there were a lot of things growing up in the past and like that they mentioned in this documentary that it wasn't just this that made them hate him they've hated him a long time so and family testimony is a strong thing because your family Mm -hmm. knows you better than anybody oh yeah absolutely yeah so and so about Josh, Reverend Norman Mezel says his both of his daughters, Clarice and Caroline, had relationships with Josh in the past. And the Reverend said he thought Josh was really interested that in his daughters because he was a reverend. Josh grew up in like a very religious household. Um, but they were like extreme, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and we'll get into a little bit of that. But Josh actually wanted to marry Caroline and called Norman and asked him about it. And Norman said he thought Josh was a career criminal and a pedophile. And Josh remained calm throughout this whole thing. And he simply said, sorry, you feel that way and hung up. Like, and the reverend said he felt really like cold about that. Like normally people would like try and defend themselves or get angry or something. And Josh was just like deadpanned when those accusations were brought up i wonder what that really tells you about the person like so do you do you agree with me then if you're not arguing with me or is it just kind of like okay i'm not gonna humor this guy and and tell him you know i don't know yeah to see it from josh's point of view if he if he didn't actually agree with him like maybe he just wanted to like try to take the upper the higher road with it and just kind of okay fine i'll back off and move on yeah instead of being so uh instead of responding angrily because like i mean anyone if anyone was like, to accuse you of that my knee-jerk reaction would be like you know fighting it right? yeah like, like how or, could like, you think that about me or saying nasty stuff back yeah so i would almost think higher of the person 
for not fighting back. Mm-hmm. Unless, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's weird, yeah. But um, Josh sent Caroline a lot of letters that were, like, very flowery and, like, almost poetic. And in the documentary, she, Caroline reads some of these letters, and they're, like, uh, I can't remember direct quotes, but they were very much, like, using that kind of poetic language like the moonlight and like is silver blah 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 like that kind of kind of stuff and she describes him as a hopeless romantic so caroline was of age right um i think she was like 17 maybe and he was a little older than her by a couple years so i i think he was like in his early 20s that's a little aggressive to be calling him a pedophile because of that. Or unless it, there was yeah. other reasons why he thought that this guy I was a pedophile. I think he suspected that Josh had a thing for younger girls, not like, like younger than Caroline, like in the past and stuff like that. Ew. Yeah. And Caroline said that sometimes Josh liked to tie her up when they were like being sexual but that he was always concerned for her safety like is it too tight blah 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 things like that so she didn't really have too many red flags about him at that point but she does now (laughs) but yeah i have thoughts on that i guess you gotta be completely transparent in a trial Mm mm-hmm but, like, the preacher's daughter, like, having to openly talk about this. And I then, know. like, it now being public knowledge so far as we're talking about it on this podcast. Uh-huh. That's got to be really yeah. embarrassing for the family. I was thinking the same thing. Like, I was like, wow. <laughs> like, and both of his daughters were involved with Josh at some point. You, I, oh, that, that, I mean, honestly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that he could marry my daughter either. If no. I Oh, no. Yeah, no. Yeah. Okay, continue. Um, so two months before the crime happened, Steve and Josh were both released from a halfway house. And the Friday before the crime, Steve was kicked out of his mother's house. So his brothers say something big was going to happen because he had just been kicked out and had nowhere to go, really. Mm-hmm. So maybe he's desperate for money. Um. And Stephen had actually locked himself in a hotel room with crack and heroin, trying to kill himself just a few days before the crime. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. And he failed the suicide and decided to go to an AA meeting in Hartford. And that's where he met Josh. So they wouldn't have met. I don't know. It was like a chance meeting, I guess. So on January 6th of 2008, the town of Cheshire hosted a vigil for the Pettit family. They lined white candle lanterns all around the town and ran the bells for three minutes, um, one minute for each of their lives. And the money, they raised a bunch of money and it went to William Pettit's foundation that he set up in their name. Um, So that was a really, like sad but also beautiful moment in the documentary that they showed as well of all the lanterns throughout the town that is it is really amazing when somebody in the town passes away like from something tragic like that it is kind of amazing to see how much the town really does come together and yeah and a lot of the support that they bring to the rest of the family members and Mm -hmm. friends you know it just and it really does seem like, especially in small towns, when something tragic like that happens, 
they really seem to make an effort to like to make sure that this doesn't happen again or to yeah like put um like for example they might try to do more like suicide support or Mm -hmm. i don't know be more cautious during a meeting or i don't know something like that yeah like Mm -hmm. yeah okay continue so the police when the media got their hands on the transcripts of the 911 call they find that police had blocked out the majority of the call then they say it's to protect the witnesses but that means the media is not hearing what really was said and what was going on so a lot of the information was just not available still is that legal yeah it is but it's frustrating for sure um so what william says happened that the police are not saying who is you know the father that when he came out of the house, he saw men in the trees, um, like all around the house, and they were police officers. So the family believes that the police officers were there before the house was on fire, and that they are now accusing the police of being more concerned with catching the two men than going in and saving the family's lives. So like they were waiting for the two guys to come out of the house instead of rushing in to save their family you know wow so the police did not approach or enter the house not once and did not share what happened really with the family so now there's kind of this war going on of the media and the pettit family against what the police Police. are saying happening and the police officers were at the house seconds after Jennifer and Stephen got back to the house, but nobody went in. And this was discovered by the lawyers when they were given transcripts of what had happened. So they find out that at 9.21 a.m. was when the 911 call was made by the banker. Police were at the scene for th- at least 30 minutes. Um, before the fire started and the fire started at 9 56 a.m see that okay i just have to say my investigation skills are like my sense to read through <laughs> bullshit is on point because <laughs> i had no idea that the police were corrupt like the fact that the fire they showed up right when the fire was engulfing the house mm-hmm. seemed way didn't seem right to me right uh-huh. I am so smart. I don't You're on to top toot, of it. I, I know. I don't mean to toot my own horn, but I'm tooting it. <laughs> I knew it. I, like, Chili's not going to get away with shit. <laughs> like, I have, I have too much of a, a Intuition. Nose. Oh, yeah, that's better. A <laughs> nose. I can sniff these things out, is what I was going to say. Yeah. Okay. Either after, way. Okay. Uh-huh. After I'm done tooting my own horn. Okay. <laughs> So, yeah, that means the police were watching the house and setting up a perimeter while Jennifer had was being raped, strangled, and the house was being set on fire. So they were there Ew, during all of that. Horrifying. Mm-hmm. They were outside. And if they had bothered to come inside, they could have possibly stopped that from happening. They would have stopped that from happening. Like, I get it. They can't foresee that the guys are going to set the place on fire. Mm-hmm. And, like, I, I understand that they're trying to prepare, you know, like like you said, set the perimeter and yeah, and be prepared. But also, you have to know that this is, however, an hour after um, yeah. 
she left the bank, stuff is going down in there. Mm-hmm. Like, you know that she... in danger. She wasn't uh, raped or strangled, and the house was not on fire, like, until after they got back, after the 911 call had been made. You know? Ugh. Like, that's just... That kills me. So the defense lawyers are still trying to push for the death penalty to be removed from this case, and they argue that... Death penalty cases, trials are gruesome, lengthy, there'll be so many appeals, it's very, very detailed, you have to drag the family through the mud, through these kind of things, and it will take even, it could take up to two years before they even start selecting a jury. So they're trying to convince the family, like, you don't want to go through this, you don't want to put yourself through yeah. this, but the family is insisting, no, I, we want to do it. Yeah. They want to do it anyway. So, May 30th, 2008, the Pettit home is actually demolished, and they made a memorial site over where the house used to be. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Stephen's own brothers testify that he was violent, cunning, and calculating his whole life, even when he was a kid, and Matthew offers to assist in getting his brother the death penalty. He said, I'll help you in any way he can. My brother should be dead. Wow. Yeah. That's intense for your brothers to, like, turn on you that much, mm-hmm. you know? That's some deep, deep wounds going on there. Um, but in 2009, Connecticut abolishes the death penalty. So oh. that means... Since this case had already been started, they can possibly still get it, but it will be harder. Right. To since Connecticut has the state of Connecticut is clearly against it. Yes. So. Yeah. So Josh kept a diary while waiting for trial, and he writes about how all of these robberies he did was not really about stealing jewels, but about stealing people's personal safety. He liked that like violation of a person's intimacy of their personal space of their innocence and he writes about how scared the pettit family was and that he liked seeing the pain and fear that he personally felt every day on other people's faces why is he writing this i I don't know because okay you're in jail so nothing you have is private like they can write that as they wish they can use that against you. And you're basically making yourself sound more like a monster and more like you need to die. <laughs> right. In my yeah. opinion. Like, it's not like... You're not showing any remorse. Mm-hmm. You're showing that you're a sick, sick person that... Exactly. Yeah. So, like, that's just... That's just putting himself mm-hmm. in more trouble. Yeah. I don't know. People... People, I, I think he probably, he wanted to be dramatic, you know? Oh, like, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Also in these diary entries, Joshua hints at possibly raping 11-year-old Michaela. He denies it to his girlfriend, Caroline, when she calls, um, when they have contact, and he never explicitly says it, but Caroline doesn't believe him his girlfriend and obviously she like cuts ties with him completely and but he continues to try and contact her and she's told she tells police and everything she fully believes he's capable of doing that ew yeah so hayes and josh have separate trials in 2010 and 2011 
and Stephen Hayes, his trial went first. They, so they were tried separately. Um, the defense for him, for Stephen, asks, I put trails, for the trials to be moved out of New Haven, which Connecticut, which is where they were going to be placed, saying the jurors were too close to this case because they were. it was only a few minutes away from Cheshire. Because most of the jurors knew all about this case already and were perfectly mm-hmm. automatically saying he should die. So the defense says this isn't a fair trial. We should move it to a different town where people don't know so much about it. But they were denied. And it's staying in New Haven. Stephen hid nine doses of prescription pills. He somehow squirreled them away while he was in jail. And the day before he was supposed to be in court, he attempts suicide again and goes into a coma. Wow. He fails again. Yeah. But he's in a coma. Mm-hmm. Um, he recovers from it pretty quickly, though, and he's deemed fine, and court proceeds. So in court, of course, they look at the cell phones, and they see that July 22nd, Steve had sent texts to Josh about how excited he is to rob the house, that he's antsy to get going, like, when are we going to do this, that kind of stuff. And... It's also believed that Josh, through these texts and from other instances, that Josh had scoped out Jennifer and Michaela because he was interested in Michaela rather than the money. And that's why he followed them around the grocery store. I can see that. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Because you can, how do you look at somebody and just be like, yeah, I bet they have money. Like, you know, there's got, I feel like there's... Right. When you're scoping them out... Especially, like, a mother and a daughter. I don't know. I yeah. wouldn't think... I would not think, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to rob them. Like... Yeah. It's not like they're walking around with diamonds hanging off of them. Right. Yeah. Um, Josh comes from a history of mental illness in his biological family because he was adopted. But he was also very severely sexually abused in his adopted family. Oh. And he was raised, like we said earlier, in a deeply religious family. And he, the church basically controlled all of his relationships. He was told physical relationships are the devil. Any anxieties you had is the devil possessing you. When he admitted to having anxiety, his parents sent him to a Christian camp to deal with it. And they used exorcism. Ooh. So it was that kind of, not like your n- normal religious family. You no. know, that's not normal. Yeah, that's a little excessive. No. I mean, yes. <laughs> so the defense for Josh really plays plays up his, you know, traumatic childhood, saying he was groomed into this kind of lifestyle. He can't help it. He, he has mental impairment. So they're really trying to get sympathy, and that's how the defense is playing it for Josh. Mm-hmm. Um, Josh admits in court that he kept hitting bill over the head with the baseball bat and after that because they saw him first downstairs on the couch sleeping and after that the two of them went upstairs and steve put his hand over jennifer's mouth and woke her up and josh tied up Haley, the older daughter and after they were tied up they put pillowcases over everyone's head i don't know why they clearly already saw you like something like that like whatever and Josh says he sat and talked with KK in her room, which is Michaela. Oh. And he kept saying KK. Like, he kept calling her that, like a nickname. And the Would family... Would they all call her KK? It was the family's nickname for her. Oh. Yeah. And the family was like, how 
dare you use our nickname for her you know like you don't deserve that kind of intimacy and that right and like clearly he had an interest in her if he bothered to listen like while they were in the store to what the mom called her and stuff like that you know and it's that kind of later in the night josh starts thinking that they left or morning because this happened in the morning um starts thinking they had left too much dna at the house and steve leaves to go get gasoline and when he comes back josh had changed michaela's clothes to try and hide dna evidence ew yeah um and on josh's phone they find photos of michaela these photos have never been disclosed and i won't go into it but apparently they were like graphic he had raped michaela yeah that is so sad i know she's the 11 year old she is the 11 year old yeah that's so sad it's terrible he's monstrous that is you're a terrible person like after hearing that like give him a death penalty you know Mm -hmm. there's no coming back from that right ew and um josh admits to doing this while jennifer was at the bank with hayes so that is when that happened um and when they arrive back from the bank Stephen thinks so Stephen is saying their stories are contradictory Stephen and josh's Stephen thinks this crime is over they got the money they just came to rob people and Stephen says that josh said no i have left dna around this house and now we have to kill them so but josh is saying Stephen wanted to kill them and that josh had insisted no i'm not killing anybody you're crazy i'm not doing that but steve says the opposite that it was josh's idea and both of their defense lawyers are trying to push it on the other person too you know so it's getting very convoluted and contradictory in the court except steve's makes more sense i do believe steve's makes more sense too yeah yeah so steven realizes that jennifer had called the police because they see cop cars arriving at the house and that is when steven raped jennifer and then strangles her because they say he felt betrayed because he thought she wouldn't call the cops on him that clearly she had told somebody at the bank and that he just like flew into a rage after that and that's why he did that you know oh yeah so gosh that's horrible Uh. i know and then josh says that steven was the one who spread gasoline everywhere and lit up the house before he could stop him and that josh went upstairs and closed the girl's bedroom's doors girl did that sentence make sense the girl the girl's bedroom doors yeah there there we go um some in the trial i don't know the prosecution maybe they asked like well why didn't you if you were concerned about the girls why didn't you untie them so they could escape the fire Mm -hmm. if steven was starting it and he said i don't know i just it didn't occur to me i guess i wish i did like i'm so sorry that i didn't you know blah 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 um whatever i don't really believe that no no um and the family the pettit family finds out through the trial that the girls were alive while they were on fire they didn't previously know that detail yeah and that through the evidence that was shown in trial they could see that the girls that the rope when the rope burned the girls had tried to crawl out of the room but they didn't 
they didn't make it and both of them died from inhaling smoke wow yeah steven and josh are both found guilty of multiple capital offenses um but they are under a penalty phase so the penalty phase is before the sentencing where the defense their defense lawyers can still argue of whether they're going to get the death penalty or not so they're found guilty but there's no sentencing yet um Stephen and Josh's defense lawyers go back and forth and back and forth of who was really responsible for the fire and who really initiated the murder. But they're not able to really settle that because it's it's a he said, he said kind of situation, mm-hmm. you know? The only people who would really know that are dead. And Bill yeah. was not upstairs that whole time, so he doesn't know what's going on upstairs. Right, right. So... On November 8th, 2010, Stephen Hayes' verdict is death penalty. And December 9th, 2011, Joshua Komisarzewski's verdict is also the death penalty. Wow, so they actually got it. Mm-hmm, they're both sentenced to death. Good. One year after his conviction, Stephen Hayes requested to be put to death immediately. He wow. Because wa- he had well, tried suicide multiple yeah. times, yeah. Um, but he is denied Good. and said he must have his appeals. So they do not, they don't do that. I didn't know you could make a request to be put to death immediately. I guess most people wouldn't want that, but I don't know. Yeah, well, well I don't know. I feel like it's kind of 50-50 between killers, because I feel like some of them are like, please kill me. Like, yeah. I'm done. Yeah. Um, so the appeals and waiting for the execution will cost $7 million and could take at least a decade before... They're even executed. But in April 2012, Connecticut abolished the death penalty for all future cases. So that means their case as well. I think, or I'm not really sure because they had already abolished the death penalty. So I'm not sure what the difference is between that law. But um, so it makes it unlikely that Hayes or uh, Komisarzewski will ever be executed. So at this point, they are on death row. But... They have not been executed yet, and it might not ever happen because of the laws in Connecticut now. With people on the death row, aren't they, like, in solitary? Yes, they're both in solitary. Well, good. At least least we can be happy with that. Honestly, that might be worse than the death penalty. I think so, too. And clearly, Stephen is struggling very much with the solitary. Oh, good. Yeah. And I know, honestly, this back and forth between the two of them was never resolved. So we're not really sure who initiated, whose idea was it to murder them and set the fire. We don't really know. You kind of just guess based off of what they both said and did. I kind Um, of, the story that I believe is that, um, yeah, while Steve was gone, mm -hmm. Josh joshua went and raped the girl yeah and then he was he was like okay we have to kill them there's too much dna and steve was on the fence until he saw the cops yeah and then he i do believe that he, you know that's when he killed and and raped um the mother mm-hmm. and then after that it was kind of a mutual okay we're doing this type thing right i would i believe that that it morphed into both of them, you know? Yeah. 
I believe that. They both did on their own something terrible. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like it was all Josh or all Stephen. They both right raped someone in that household. And I think the defense gave them the idea to pin it on the other person. Yeah. I think that the defense is like, this is the only way that you could possibly get anything out of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To and try and save yourself from the death penalty. Right. So I think that, yeah, it was mainly them putting it off on someone else. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I would believe that for sure, too. And I know the death penalty is really controversial, but I personally, for me, if there's ever any kid involved, I think you deserve to die. Sorry. but Yeah. But honestly, like I said, like I do, I do believe that in the death penalty. But then at the same time, it's like, but at the, but I feel like you should sit in jail for a long time first. <laughs> I know. I, I believe in both. I'm like, you should die. But also I believe that's the easy I, way out that, sometimes. Exactly. I sometimes I'm like, no, you deserve to rot forever. Like, I don't know. It's. It's very complicated, and I'm yeah. I'm constantly going back and forth because it's like about would, it. Yeah, because it's kind of just like I don't. I, this is gonna sound horrible, but like I don't care about what's better for you. I want to know what's worse for you. Like yeah. what's a better punishment? Yeah, I don't mind killing you if you're terrified to die, but if you want to die, then I want to put you in solitary confinement. Right. Like yeah, <laughs> whatever is gonna make you yeah. miserable. Like okay, you pick. What do you want? And then they say, I'll go with solitary confinement. Okay, we'll kill you then. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's horrible. <laughs> we'll do but the still. Else. Maybe that's why we don't work in legal <laughs> proceedings. You know, oh I talk gosh. yeah, I talk about how how good I'd be until it comes to the punishment and then you don't want me to catch you. No. Yeah, so that is the case of the Pettit family. It's called The Cheshire Murders. Again, that HBO documentary wow. on it. It has a lot more, and it has a lot more um, interviews, like, with the family um, than I was able to mention in here. Yeah. But, um, so if you want to hear things from the family about who they were and their side of things, it's definitely good to check out. That's going to be such a... Because I, I definitely am going to watch it. Mm-hmm. That'll be a sad case to listen to. Yeah. For one, it's just so random. Yeah. It's, it totally was random. Because they were shopping in a store and they're, and they're a cute family. Yeah. And you just get caught by one sicko. Yeah. Ugh. People are disgusting. I know. I just can't believe. It makes me upset. Yeah. But, I mean to bring out some sort of light in this like like i said it, it seemed like it brought the community together a little bit i don't know yeah just, you want to try to find a bright side and everything it's mm-hmm. pretty much impossible through all this but yeah yeah i mean i my that i mean i'm sure that bill the father is still recovering from all of this yeah i'm you know i'm not sure Does how he, you you know yeah live with that but no, i don't know i was gonna ask does he go by bill right he you? does yeah okay yeah his I, name's william but he goes by bill or billy okay i wasn't sure if you were calling him bill or if i just know that so <laughs> okay good yeah oh man well um oh oh jilly is hit. Oh. <laughs> oh, no. she is dragging down the mic <laughs> she said i want to say something she, bring the mic to me you want to talk jill want to say something <laughs> Nothing. Julie, wake up. 
<laughs> you make sure that little bubble she's not oh Jenny you want to say something no she grabbed the mic like she wanted to she say did she pulled it down <laughs> oh well yeah so we're gonna go and enjoy those blue, blue not blueberry mm-hmm. they're not blueberry uh what are they they're chocolate double chocolate muffin. yeah double chocolate muffins we're gonna go enjoy those and we'll post the box that we use yeah but they did turn out really good they, they look did. really good and um yeah i'm excited to eat them so yeah. um anyway on that note i'm casey i'm emily and you just heard a sprinkle of sugar a dash of murder mm-hmm.